I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This secluded spot was the haunt of thousands of honeybees that zimmed all through the warm days at their business. I could sit amongst the bees for hours on end and feel happy. She didn't fit into the Surrealist movement. She told me once, I've never read the Surrealist Manifesto. She, she simply wasn't interested. And, and nor is any good artist interested in fitting in. Artists are outsiders. Gosh, it's so scary to think of her on her own here with war broken in Europe. And, and she's so far from home, so far from the man she loved. When Carmela gave me the present of a hearing trumpet, she may have foreseen some of the consequences. Carmela is not what I would call malicious, she just happens to have a curious sense of humour. That's the opening line of The Hearing Trumpet, a novel by the English surrealist artist Leonora Carrington. It's an apocalyptic and hilarious story of 90-year-old rebels, a quest for the Holy Grail, ecological catastrophe, murder, cross-dressing, a nuclear-powered ark on skis, witchcraft, and werewolves. It was written in the early 1960s, but wasn't published until the mid-70s. And it was written while Leonora Carrington was living in Mexico, the country she made her home. It's a strange and extraordinary book. The novelist Ali Smith calls it one of the most original, joyful, satisfying, and quietly visionary novels of the 20th century. And in 2009, The Guardian named it as one of their thousand novels that everyone should read. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book. And right now I'm actually driving through the south of France from Marseille to a little village on the Ardèche River called Saint-Martin, where I'm hoping to access a secret tower and jump into a bubbling cauldron to discuss the art, the magic and the mystery of Leonora Carrington. And I'm delighted that in the car with me is the guest for today's episode. It's the journalist Joanna Moorhead. Joanna, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Joanna has written for many uh, newspapers and periodicals, particularly The Guardian and The Observer. In 2006, she discovered that her cousin was a great celebrated artist in Mexico, Leonora Carrington. She met 
Leonora and they developed a very close friendship in the last five years of Leonora Carrington's life. In 2010, Joanna co-curated an exhibition of Leonora Carrington's work in the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester in the UK. And in 2017, she published The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, an affectionate, fascinating and frankly brilliant biography of this truly remarkable woman. Joanna, I can't think of a better person to be joining us for this uh, episode about Carrington. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you discovered that she was your cousin? I mean, how did you not know about her before? You know, I know it seems extraordinary to think that, you know, an artist of Leonora's stature wouldn't be known about in her family. Um, but I have to say, her stature 15 years ago was not as... She wasn't as well-known as she is today. But also, I think another reason was that she had... You know, she'd effectively shut the door on being part of our family. And what I've realised since is that if you turn your back on your family, even though you might go on to become very successful, as indeed she did, um, it's a very big statement because she was basically saying that, that her life was not going to be our family's life. And, you know, that leaves a lot of baggage, I guess. So she wasn't, she wasn't sort of celebrated, you might say, in our family. And there'd been a lot of bad stuff when she left, which had meant that she, you know, she wasn't kind of remembered in the family the way she is in the, in the wider world. Well, we'll talk later, I'm sure, about how she split with the rest of the family. But t- tell us about the circumstances of how you heard about her and how you, how you came to discover her. Right, so so I was, uh, I, it was a completely chance thing for me. I was in my early 40s, the mother of four little girls, raising these kids in South London. And I went to another parent in one of my children's class school, had a little party for other parents. And I went along and I started talking to a woman who wasn't a parent with a child in the class. And uh, she turned out to be Mexican and an art historian. And during our conversation, this thought just came to my mind that this mysterious relative who I had known existed, I knew very little about her story, but I knew two things, just from overheard conversations and so on. Mexico, I knew that was involved, and art, I knew that was involved. So I said to this woman, I'm sure you will not have heard of my father's cousin. And I said, to be honest, she might be dead for all I know. And then I said her name, and I had to remember her name because in our family she's called Prim to remember that her name was Leonora and when I said Leonora Carrington this woman who hadn't been that interested frankly in my story up to then just couldn't believe you know what I was what I was saying and said but do you not know she's the most famous artist alive in Mexico which wasn't entirely true but you know she she wasn't far off Um, and this woman kept saying to me right through the evening you must go and find Leonora and I no idea how I do that when I got home I googled and I saw her work and and then I could see elements of her story which I'm sure we'll be talking about on this trip and then I found a way of getting to Mexico how amazing so you went and visited her in in 2006 and and what you know what was she like what you know how would you just describe her as a person when you met her um, my family in England had been a bit cautious or had wanted me to be a bit cautious about going out there because another cousin, I think, had passed through Mexico and hadn't found her very receptive to meeting up. Um, and I think my father was a bit worried about me doing it, you know, about me going out there. So I was, I guess, I was very nervous and I, and I wondered, you know, what she'd be like and and it seemed like a huge, and indeed it was a huge thing to do, to fly 5,000 miles, you know, leaving my children and my 
you know, my life in London, and, and I owned, and I just had her phone number in my pocket. Um, so I phoned up her gallery. I'd said I was coming to Mexico anyway, which is of course a lie. I was going specifically really to see her. Um, they'd said, she says, you know, you can go around for a cup of tea. I phone her after ten. So the first morning at about one minute past ten, I phoned, um, and she answered the phone on the first ring, and. As soon as I heard her voice, I knew it was going to be okay. So I guess how she was to me was very welcoming of me, but kind of against the odds because I had feared that it wouldn't be that way. And she was also um, curious about the family she'd left so long before. And I think um, part of why we got on was I wasn't just wanting course I was wanting to hear all about her life I mean that that is what had drawn me to it but I was able to give her something which was news about this family yes, she'd left so long before so I was like oh he married her and they had these children and this happened and that happened because she hadn't known how the story played out but she herself I mean she was by then in her late 80s um, but she was always up to the end very interested in in what other people were doing and what was going on in life in politics very curious amazing and, and what a privilege to you know be able to talk to you who knew her so well in those last last years now as well as being an artist a painter a sculptor a costume designer Leonora Carrington was also a writer she wrote short stories she wrote novellas she wrote play scripts and something uh, that you have in your biography Jan is, is she once told you that everything she wrote was autobiographical in some way and in one of her other stories, not The Hearing Trumpet, but another story called Little Francis, she describes arriving in the Ardèche Valley, um, as we are doing right now. Jana, would you mind reading out that section for us? They rode all through the day, coming upon a river with a white stony shore. Francis had never seen such water, so brilliant and deep and green. In the evening, they crossed a long, narrow bridge and turned sharp right into the village. It was just light enough to see two hedgehogs squashed in the middle of the road. <laughs> she had to add the hedgehogs. She's so good at the sort of deadpan, macabre sentence at the end of the Yeah, that's very Leonora, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're about to head into the very same village that she's describing there, um, the village of Saint-Martin-Dardèche. And um, we're in the Ardèche Valley now. You can really you can see the hills on either side, and we're in the fertile floodplain. We're passing vineyards at the moment, and dotted among the cypress trees are little farm buildings, little houses. You, you know, you can tell we're in Provence, can't you? These very distinctive tiled roofs and and stone walls. Very green, isn't it? Yes, very green. These dark green trees and, and bright green crops. Lots of signs to medieval. There we are. Well, just, here we are. Yeah, Martin, so we're turning left. Just turn left, yeah. So we've arrived in Saint Martin on a really beautiful sunny afternoon, and we're sitting out looking over the river Ardèche in this really beautiful spot. We're sitting in the terrace of a of a little bar called Hotel Les Touristes, which, when Leonora Carrington visited this, this town in 1938, she often would have frequented this very bar and come to drink. I think she even stayed a few nights here in this very bar we're sitting in. 
And in that story we mentioned just now, Little Francis, she has a description of the scene we're looking at. She says, the terrace was covered with vines, which it kind of still is. They sat where they could see the river and the tall calcareous cliffs opposite. The rocks were shaped after a hundred different creatures. And actually we can see those cliffs absolutely, can't we? This is a really distinctive aspect of this part of France, that the, the, these calcium-rich rocks are just eaten away by the river. And that, that feels so typical of Leonora Carrington, but she sees in those strange sort of wiggly shapes, she sees animal faces appearing yeah. out of the cliff. Now we'll get to how she got to France and to this village in the south of France. But first, let's introduce the protagonist of The Hearing Trumpet, who's called Marion Leatherby. Now the first thing to say about her is she's 92 years old, which is <laughs> unusual straight away. She's English, but she's been living in Mexico for more than 40 years, which is remarkably similar to the situation that Leonora Carrington was in when you met her, right? I think she was 89 when you first met her, but you knew her into her 90s. Well, she was 89 when I first met her, that's true, but I actually spent her 92nd birthday with her. Wow. <laughs> and we spent a lot of the day talking about the fact that she was now the age Marion Leatherby is in the novel. Um, and I've often wondered whether... As you know, Leonora wrote that book when she was in midlife, mm. not when she was elderly. Mm. And I've often wondered whether, did she look ahead and imagine how she would be, or did she decide then how she was going to be? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Based on her character, yes, how interesting. So let's talk a bit about the character. Tell us, tell us about Marion Leatherby. What's she like as a person, and in what ways is she similar to Leonora? Marion Leatherby is a, a woman who by chance realises that her family are going to put her into an old people's home, basically. And she goes with the plan, and she ends up in this extraordinary kingdom, which is the old people's home. She's a woman who is, at the end of her life, on an adventure. Mm. She's, she's on this extraordinary adventure, and one of the things that's very true to Leonora, and is absolutely how she was in the time that I knew her, was that she didn't believe, and indeed she lived this, that her later life was as much of an adventure as her early days. And obviously most people who know Leonora know her because of this, the story that happened here, mm. uh, around you know the love affair, in the, in, the, in, the, in the town we are now. But, um, but Leonora's life continued to be an adventure and The Hearing Trumpet is about how life is still an adventure. And in fact, I think when you read The Hearing Trumpet, you might think it's the greatest adventure. <laughs> yes. Uh, at the end, uh, you she's, know, in that She's very funny, isn't she? She, she? When she's describing her own physical appearance near the beginning, she says, I, I have a short beard which some people find repulsive. I personally find it rather gallant. And it... it it feels like it's not a self-portrait, but there are definitely some autobiographical elements in Oh, there are definitely there. autobiographical elements in it. And really, the novel is so much like a Leonora Carrington painting because there are so many layers of life going on in that environment. There are elements of it that are Leonora's school days. I can see that quite clearly. There are layers of it that are her family life in England before she left. There are layers of it that are imaginary kingdoms and kingdoms that she's been to in her dreams. There's quite a lot of Catholicism in it, actually, mm. the, the religion of her childhood. There's another moment where Marion says that, um, that sleeping and waking are not quite as distinctive as they used to be. I often mix them up. I think that's a really interesting line for this novel because 
there is a sense in which the novel is like a kind of dream. The way that uh, lots of things which are dreamt or suggested by characters early on start turning into reality over the course of the novel. And and I think maybe, you know, in this instance, Carrington's imagining that as a, as a sort of quality of old age, the difference between sleep and wake blurs. But maybe that was always the case for her, that in her surrealistic view of the world, there actually wasn't such a big difference between reality and, and dreaming. Yeah, and I think that's that's possibly the case. And I think also that maybe that was one of the ways in which she became more true to the person she wanted to be. I mean, she wouldn't have wanted to say she wanted to be a surrealist. She mm. just was her. Sure? And other people kind of decided she was a surrealist. But I remember one day, really towards the end of her life, and she was having a rest in her bed, and I'd gone to sit beside her bed, and she appeared to me to be asleep. I was reading, and suddenly she sat up in bed and said... Have you ever thought about how strange it is that it's so much easier for women to be writers than artists? And when I thought she was asleep, she was actually in a kind of state of semi-wakefulness and, you know, a different consciousness state. And so I wonder whether later life, very end of life, makes you nearer to the sort of consciousness that the surrealists actually valued oh, so much. Yes. And I think that I think I've thought the same thing as you about the way she describes the difference between wake waking and sleeping. And I think it's actually quite brilliant in parts, the hearing trumpet, the way she describes the sort of sense of not being sure about whether I'm here or whether I'm fifty years ago and she says something like, um I can't remember you anymore, but I can remember your white flannels. Yes, and then, yes, a memory of the past. She yeah. starts, see, starts to fade. You can see the flowers through yeah. the white flannels. Yes, yeah. yes. I find it very moving, um, but I also think it's probably very true. You know, we've heard that the opening line of the book is, is this gift of a hearing trumpet. And what the hearing trumpet allows Marion to hear is that, as you say, her family are planning to pack her off to this rather sinister-sounding old people's home run by the Well of Light Brotherhood, which sounds incredibly sinister, financed by a prominent American serial company. Ali Smith, the novelist who, who wrote the introduction to the Penguin edition, she has this great description of it. She says, It reads on its parodic surface like an Agatha Christie domestic mystery, but one that's been melted, dissolved by extreme heat into something unthinkably other and reconstructed as the casebook of an alchemist. I like that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's good. And yeah. as you say in uh, your biography, you say it's um, on one level it's a, it's a kind of romp, but on another it's a deadly serious reappraisal of a male-centric, youth-obsessed world. I think that's very astute. It's resetting the balance in some way. Yeah, and I think that's what Leonora was about in many, many ways in her, in her writing and in her art. That's a good way to put it, mm. resetting the balance. Mm-hmm. And, and she was born in Lancashire, as I believe you were. Tell us, Joanna, what was her childhood like? She was the daughter of a very wealthy textile mill owner and his wife, who was my great-aunt, and she was a doctor's daughter from Ireland. So they were an unlikely match, these two. Um, And Leonora was the second of their four children, and the others were all boys. So most of her first decade was spent in a house called Crookie Hall, which is a big Gothic kind of mansion in Lancashire. Which appears Um, in one of her paintings, doesn't it? It appears in a painting, a lithograph, and it's in the background of many of her paintings, Uh actually. Uh And an art historian who, I think, curated a show of her work, described it as being written on her soul. 
So she grew up in this large house in Lancashire where there would have been servants, and there were gardens and there were stables and there was a very, very advantaged lifestyle. And her parents, because they weren't of money, they, they've sometimes wrongly been described as aristocrats. There, were, there was no aristocracy. And so the big ambition of the parents was for Leonora to marry. If she had married into aristocracy, that would have been the ticket for the whole family do you see what I mean? To go, yeah, yeah. you know, to enter the grand uh, drawing rooms of, of England. Right. But Leonora was not playing ball. And she was not playing ball from the beginning. She didn't feel she fitted into the family. They sent her off to convent boarding schools and she was she was asked to leave, two yes. of them. Then they I, sent I, her off around Europe. I think the nuns at one of her schools said, um, this girl will collaborate with neither work nor play. Yeah, <laughs> which is another way of saying she won't fit in to anything. Right. And, and Leonora never fitted into anything, ever, ever, ever. She didn't fit into the Surrealist movement. Uh, she told me once, I've never read the Surrealist Manifesto. <laughs> she, she simply wasn't interested. And, and nor is any good artist interested in fitting in. Mm. Artists are outsiders. Sure. One of her most famous short stories is called The Debutante. It's a fictional version of a real event, which was that she, she was presented at court as a debutante in 1935 in this very sort of old-fashioned um, kind of ritual. And, and in, the, in the story, she, the young woman in the story can't bear the idea of going to this event, so she um, befriends a hyena who agrees to um, go in her place and rips off the face of her maid and wears it like a mask and goes to this. It's, a, it's a wonderfully macabre and, and horrific. Um, this was almost the last straw for her, wasn't it? Because um, you know her family wanted her to fit in, and she wasn't going to fit in. In fact, she even says in the hearing trumpet, um, she says, in Lancashire, I got an attack of claustrophobia and tried to convince mother to let me go and study painting in London. She decides to become an artist. And tell us about that. What happened, what happened then? Well, first of all, I've got to say, Leonora did not decide to become an artist. I'm saying this because... This is what she told me and what she'd want me to say. Yeah. Because she said to me very clearly, it was never a decision. It was never a choice. She described it to me by saying, it's like when you're hungry and you go to the kitchen, you have to eat. Uh, right. It was a need. It's an impulse, yeah. yeah it was okay. a need for her. And uh, I think she kind of did a deal with her parents that she could stay in London. There was someone who was kind of appointed to keep an eye on her. Okay. And uh, she managed to persuade them that she could go to art school. I think one of the things about Maury and Harold, her parents, was they saw art as a kind of nice little thing for a, for a young lady to do. They didn't realise what art is about in the way Leonora. So uh, she was speaking a completely different language when she was talking about being an artist. They were thinking she'd paint nice little, you know, not still lifes. Not that there's anything wrong with painting still lifes, but they saw it as a safe occupation. Obviously, art... Is, is the most dangerous occupation there is. <laughs> right. Well, because, so she studied under Amade Ozenfant in, in London. And in fact, her mother gave her a copy of the new book by Herbert Reed called Surrealism. And on the cover of that book, uh, an image of the artwork by the German surrealist painter Max Ernst, two children menaced by a nightingale. And in 1987, Carrington told Marina Warner that when she saw this image, it was like a burning inside. You know how when something really touches you, it feels like burning. And amazingly, at the same time that she was studying art in London, Max Ernst was exhibiting at a, uh, a gallery in London. And she got to meet him at the house of the architect, Erno Goldfinger, in Hampstead. She was 20 uh, and he was 46. And, well, there was love at first sight, right? They, just, they were fascinated by each other. 
And actually, when she saw the Max Ernst painting, later she remembered, ah, oh, I understand that. I know what that's about, she said. And how interesting was it that she saw the work, she understood what it was about, and she hasn't even, she doesn't even know yet she's going to meet the artist. And she did say, I fell in love with his work before I fell in love with him. How interesting. There is nothing wrong about painting, she told me. I paint boxes myself for jumble sales. There is a difference, though, in being artistic and in actually being an artist. Your Aunt Edgeworth wrote novels and was very friendly with Sir Walter Scott, but she would never have called herself an artist. It wouldn't have been nice. Artists are immoral. They live together in attics. You could never get used to an attic after all the luxury and comfort you have here. Well, it, it's the next morning now in Saint-Martin and a beautiful sunny morning. And we've just had a spot of breakfast outside the uh, hotel where we're staying. We left Leonora Carrington having just met Max Ernst in London. And perhaps this is a good moment to talk about what happened next, because, of course, she followed him to Paris, to where surrealism was really in force. There's a lovely moment in, in The Hearing Trumpet where Marion... Leatherby thinks back to one of the memories of her youth and she says, Ah, the Luxembourg gardens and the smell of chestnut trees, Paris, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, having breakfast on the terrace of a café with Simon, whose face was as clear and solid as if still full of life. But Simon must be dead for 30 years now. There is nothing left of him as far as I know. So, Joanna, what happened when Leonora followed Max to Paris? Max had sort of opened up a new world to her. And she'd actually tasted life with the Surrealists in Cornwall, where mm-hmm. they'd also gone for a few weeks. Um, and then she got to a point where she realised that the Surrealists were the family she wanted to be with. So she went to see her parents and she said, I'm going to go to be with Max in Paris. And her father said, if you do that, then don't come back here, kind of thing. Gosh. Um, so she had a choice and she already knew what the choice was. And she followed Max. She always said that she did her running away alone. I don't think it's true exactly to say this was an elopement either because mm. she wasn't That's just often going how it's portrayed, isn't it, it is often how it's portrayed but I don't think she was just going for love mm. I think she was going for a new life and what was this scene in Paris like what were the, the parties and the exhibitions what was the milieu that she was entering well what she the world that she was going to be in in Paris was really the sort of mature or kind of I suppose you could say high point of surrealism surrealism had been in Paris had come from sort of Germany and other places Mm. starting with Dadaism so it was in its kind of mature moment if you like Mm -hmm. in Paris and of course surrealism is not just about art surrealism is a is an intellectual movement it's it's about poetry and writing and just a way of looking at the world and all of this was just in its most flowering fertile moment and one of the tragic things that was, you know, very important to the moment it was in was was the, the fact that war was coming. And uh, the Surrealists were very, very concerned about what was happening in Germany. And, of course, that was Max's country. And that was very much a focus. It, was, it wasn't about parties uh, for Leonora, but the meetings for the Surrealists, gatherings where they met and discussed things, that happened in the cafes of Saint-Germain, in the Café de Magot, in the, in the Café Floor. And that's where... They gathered. There's one legend that she went to a party in Paris dressed only in a sheet and let it fall halfway through the party very dramatically. 
Um, I don't know if that's true, but that's one of the, the stories about her at this time. Yeah, there are always there are a lot of stories about Leonora and these kind of um, outrageous moments, aren't there? Other things as well that she did, sort of lifting her dress in, in Lancashire when one of the Jesuits was there for dinner and she had no knickers on and stuff like this. Um, and uh, I mean, I I'm not saying that they didn't didn't happen. I think she was somebody who was sort of apt to to be a bit outrageous sometimes. But I think it was more a sort of an instinct, you know, we don't know what else would have been going on at that sure. event. And in terms of her career, it was in Paris that she really started painting and writing seriously. And partly under the, the sort of mentorship of Max Ernst, but also, you know, on her own two feet. And, and she sold her first uh, painting in Paris, right, to Peggy Guggenheim, the great She did. Writer. Yeah, that's, that's right. And in fact, um, Leonora joined Max in Paris and they found an apartment together. Slight complication was that Max Ernst had a wife right. who was also living in Paris. <laughs> so that's difficult yes, um, right. for everybody. And she also published her first writing in, in Paris, a pamphlet story called The House of Fear with illustrations by Ernst. Um, and an introduction by him. Right. Yeah. I think that introduction kind of points up the, the difference between, you know, him as this established figure in the art world and her as the emerging. So Max Ernst had a wife, Marie Berth, in Paris, and uh, this sort of very awkward-sounding love triangle between the couple and, and Leonora reached a kind of peak of um, stress for them all. At which point, Max wrote to his son Jimmy, he said, all I want now is to leave Paris for a long time and live with Leonora in the Ardèche and to love her if the world will only allow it. And they set off to come here, where we are, Saint-Martin. So let's, let's walk back into the village and um, imagine how it was when they first arrived here in 1938. Great. There wouldn't have been much else in the village then. So, you know, she's saying that she could see the lights. I mean, they wouldn't have needed to go far to camp, would they? We're on the bank of the Ardèche River now, and gosh, it's really looking stunning today. The sunlight is sparkling on the water. We're looking across at these incredibly dramatic calcium cliffs, river cliffs, rising out of the water. And you can really picture how this must have felt like paradise for Leonora and Max, escaping from Paris, heading right down here to the very south of France and, and really getting to the end of the road up the Ardèche Valley. You know, this Saint-Martin was the end of the road at that time. And in that story that we mentioned yesterday, Little Francis, she has a description of this, of this very scene. She says, The other side of the river was a different world from the village side. A few yards off, the river rushed white over the stones, broke into a deep green pool, and sailed on smooth and wide. The pool was the deepest point on the river for a hundred yards, and a rock like a big mushroom stood in the middle, sinking into the stones beneath. And... Joanna, I mean, maybe it's not, but look, there is actually a rock over there which does look like a big mushroom rising out of the water. So maybe that is the very one that she's, she's remembering. It definitely does, yeah, yeah. you're right. Now, in that story, um, the characters who sort of equate to Leonora and Max, they camp for a while on the, on the banks of the river. And, and, and maybe Max and Leonora did, we, you know, who knows. But certainly they would have known this very spot we're in right now and... and I imagine it, it would have looked very similar to how it looks today. Now, just going back to the hearing trumpet, as we said yesterday, Marion, the, the protagonist, is, arrives at her old, this rather sinister old people's home. 
and finds herself in this community of 10 other elderly ladies. Uh, it says uh, that they're aged over 70 and under 100. And just thinking again about, about the age of these characters, why do you think Carrington was drawn to writing about such old characters? Well, you know, what, you know that's an unusual decision for a, for a novelist. I mean, I think she was always interested in the power of women and in the mysteries around women and in the kind of, um, you know, these stories that she'd got in Ireland from her grandmother, my great-grandmother, mm. had this story that the women on her side of her family were kind of related to this supernatural kind of matriarchal race, all fantastical stuff. But I think it led Leonora to be very interested in the magical in women. And I think if you're interested in the magical side of women, uh, women in later life are very interesting. You know, they say that, you know, the female of the human species survive beyond their childbearing years. So there's some reason why we're being kept alive. I'm in that category myself now. <laughs> and I think that it's possibly to do with sort of the wisdom and, and I'm not saying I'm, you know, wise, but, but uh, the wisdom of, that's come of living a long life as a woman. And I think maybe she's very interested in that. Yes, in your, in your book, you, you put it brilliantly, you say, later life women combine female intuition, lived wisdom and insightful logic. And they are perhaps the only human creatures to bring these elements together. I'd never seen it quite that way, and that is a fascinating way to, to see these characters. Well, it's amazing to think of uh, Leonora and Max on the riverbank here in 1938, and they loved this spot so much that they decided um, to stay longer, and they ended up buying a house in Saint-Martin. And so let's, let's head up there now. Great. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so we, 
We've been climbing up the lane from the village. And, well, Joanna, is this the house? Look, appearing through the olive trees, there's a big cypress tree right next to a... I think this is it. This is it, yep. Wow, look at Here it. Here we are. And in a minute, you're going to see the bas relief on the outer wall that right. absolutely marks it out as Yes, so it's a very... You know, my first impression is it's a very typical Provencal farmhouse with tiled roof, plastered walls, a little stone wall in front of the courtyard. But gosh, yes, you you couldn't mistake it, could you? Because there's this enormous two giant sculptures on the wall in, in prominent relief. When Marina Warner visited this house in the 1980s, she described it like this. She said it's a stone Provencal farmhouse on a hill above the deep valley of the Ardèche, east of the great gorges and natural arches carved by the spate of the river. Behind the house is a fragmentary carving of a horse on a broken wall, and another white horse's head bears teeth on the balustrade of the terrace. Inside, the owners told me, though they would not let me in, there are cupboards and doors also painted by her. And she says of this sculpture, the beaked giant, that's the one on the left, is easy to recognise as Max Ernst's alter ego, Lop Lop, Prince of the Birds, and his partner as the mythologised figure of the surreal muse incarnate at that time for Ernst in Leonora Carrington. And what an announcement for guests and visitors coming up this lane. Like, you know, you would know you had arrived. These are, these are about twice the size of, of a human. Yeah. They absolutely announce that this is the house of mm. Max Ernst and Leonora Carrington. And, and the rather remarkable thing is that visitors are not usually allowed into this house. But amazingly, Joanna, because you know the owners through writing your book, we've managed to arrange access into the house. I'm incredibly excited to, to step inside. Albert, bonjour. Hello. How are you? Uh, fine, well? you. Good, very well. Good night. Yeah. Lovely night, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Well, nice. Thank you very much. Okay, so we've stepped into this extraordinary courtyard with a fig tree and a rose bush, and there are steps leading up into the into the house, outdoor steps. I can see one doorway where it says 1735 above the lintel, and another one where it says 1640. So this is this is an old farmhouse, 1640. 1640. Wow. Do you want to go first? I'll go. Sure. For the Look back as we as we walk up the <laughs> stairway. Here's a little reclining sculpture on the angle of the balustrade looks like it's headless now but maybe it was once a, a mermaid or a, some kind of figure lying on the steps gosh so we're coming up the stairs now into a beautiful terrace but enclosed room with a roof but with open windows looking out over the incredible view down into the valley and of course the walls are just covered in these incredible sculptures. Look, here is another bird figure with a, with a sort of reclaimed metal that's been turned into a beak and a, a pair of owl's eyes. And, and the, the figure that dominates this space looks like a sort of bat-like figure with a bull's head and horns filling the wall. And the colours are still really bright. White body on a kind of green snake with a blue background. That's of Leonora. Oh, and this, And yeah. look, yes... A sculpture on the wall at the top of the stairs of a horse's head 
very distinctively one of Leonora's horses when you say Joanna. Yes, absolutely. It looks. Gosh. Yeah. I think the work here, that's very Max. It's very similar to a figure in his paintings. The, the and the horses. Sculpture. Yeah. yeah. And the horse is very similar to Leonora's, particularly early mm. paintings. So standing here, Joanna, looking at the view down onto the valley of the river, across the hills, a very green, verdant view, probably hasn't changed that much, although there are many more houses, I suspect. But Joanna, you know, thinking about Max and Leonora living here, what was life like for them in this house? You know, you can picture them sitting in this very spot looking at this view. Yeah, for sure. What did this house mean for them? Well, I think it was their kind of paradise, really. It was this wonderful world that they created for themselves and they made it into the world they wanted they did quite a lot of work I think on the house and I think created this room and they just had a wonderful idyllic summer um, here because they were both working they had one another they were in love um, they they had a lot of privacy they also had a few friends came to stay like yes. Lee Miller and Roland Penrose so they've got some wonderful photographs of their time here um, they just had Lots of time. And it was a productive period for them, right? It was very productive. Lots of painting. Mm. And and also, this is where Leonora wrote many of her short stories on a typewriter in this this house. Yeah, she wrote some stories here. And I think, yeah, it was a very productive period because um, many of the paintings that we know of Max and Leonora were done in this house. But, of course, there's also this secret treasure trove that we're seeing now of work they did which is in the fabric of this house, right. so it's going nowhere, yes, ever. But, you know, it shows place. how prolific a time it was. They must have been working very hard, both of them. Yeah. Also, just looking at these sculptures on the wall, you know, these paintings onto the wall, it, it reminds me of that strange moment in The Hearing Trumpet when Marion Leatherby first arrives at her old people's home. And she walks into her room, and it seems to be a beautifully furnished room, but then she realises that nearly all the furniture is just painted onto the Walls. Like, it looks like there's a wardrobe, but it's actually just trompe l'oeil. Mm. It's painted onto the wall. It looks like there's a nice open window with an amazing view and a fluttering um, curtain. And then it turns out that's just painted onto the wall. Mm. And I feel like, you know, there must have been a memory of this place where there was both a mixture of reality, beautiful views, but then also, you know, daily experience of painting onto the wall and making yeah. dreams come alive on the walls. Yeah. The way I described it in my book is I think they, they painted the house with their love, really. They, they painted it with their love, both of art and of one another. Well, let's head on into the house now, Albert, if that's all right, and, and see some more of, of what's inside. The cavern was as warm as a kitchen. Beside the flames sat a woman stirring a great iron cauldron. She seemed familiar to me, although I could not see her face. Something in the clothes and the bent head made me feel I had often seen her before. As I drew near the fire, the woman stopped stirring the pot and rose to greet me. When we faced each other, I felt my heart give a convulsive leap and stop. The woman who stood before me was myself. That was the kitchen. So this was here, the kitchen? The kitchen. Okay. And here was the a tape, tapes, and the, the basin. basin. All of that, except that Leonora. Came from her wow, house. Leonora's, yeah. So yeah. we're looking at crockery. I love very much that. Yeah, these yeah. sort of nursery cups and saucers and a jug. Fantastic. I don't know how she managed to get it all here either. Oh, that amazing. must have been quite a feat. So 
Gosh, so we're stepping into what was the kitchen, and it's uh, the centre of the house, isn't it? You've got doors going off in different directions. You've got the staircase going up to the upper floor. You've got this sort of barrel-faulted ceiling mm. and uh, small windows, I guess, to keep the, the warmth out. But, Joanna, you know, standing here in the kitchen that Leonora and Max would have used, kitchens have a, a really an important space for Leonora, aren't they? They feature often in her paintings like The House Opposite mm. and Grandmother Moorhead's Aromatic Kitchen. Mm. Um, and I remember in your book when you first meet Leonora in Mexico City and she takes you into her kitchen and you describe it as her inner sanctum tab- mm. and tabernacle-like. And what was it, do you think, about kitchens that was particularly important for Leonora? I think um, the, the kitchen in Ireland that she remembered from her childhood, her grandmother's kitchen probably would have had a couple of people helping but you know it wasn't like crooky with a whole team of people so the kitchen would have been much more where the family gathered mm. and I imagine that that was her first experience of of what a kitchen could be that a kitchen was a meeting place it would have been warm in grandmother Moorhead's aromatic kitchen we see this big stove so that would have been the warm place in cold yes. Ireland and I think it became for her a place of community a place of me- people meeting and sharing and being with the people they wanted to be with um, and then there are, as in everything to do with Leonora, you know, different layers because there's also the kind of alchemy, the creation of the kitchen, mm. the kitchen as the women's space and, the, you know, just the place where, I think in Mexico, where she lived in later life, the kitchen was where Leonora felt completely safe. She felt safe and it was kind of well away from the street, that kitchen. It was kind of right in the centre of the house, well away. So she could have the people in there she wanted. It was her space. And it's interesting that the sort of kitchen activities blended in some ways with her artistic activities. Mm. You know, her great friend and patron, Edward James, said that her paintings are not merely painted, they're brewed. Mm. And I think you once said that art is like cooking, but cooking isn't that easy either. Mm. And it's really interesting that you point out that the paint she liked to use was egg tempera, which yeah. involves separating the yolk from the white. And, and, and it's almost like there's a kind of recipe to um, preparing the materials for painting. Yeah, it's a connection, Um, isn't it? And of course, there's that, the strangest and one of the most memorable scenes from The Hearing Trumpet is when Marion descends into this strange, cavernous space after various apocalyptic occurrences have happened. Mm. And then even weirder is um, she's sort of confronted by herself, this sort of ageless version of Marion and, and the other her says um you know who's going to get into this cauldron you or me Mm. and in the end the other one picks her up and plunges her into the cauldron and there's this great sort of it says a mighty rumbling um and then suddenly there I was standing outside the pot stirring the soup in which I could see my own meat feet up boiling away merrily as any joint of beef this weird metaphysical moment where she meets herself and then disappears from her own consciousness Mm. into this alter ego who becomes this kind of rejuvenated new character but all of it happens in this kitchen in that space sort of supernatural kitchen and she's also another character she was very interested in was saint Teresa and Mm. saint Teresa's levitation Mm. and there's a story about saint Teresa levitating in the kitchen and she painted that so saint Teresa is kind of in the center of the frame and the cauldron below Well, let's, you know, this is an amazing sort of, this is clearly the heart of the house. Let's move on and see some of the rest of this extraordinary structure.
So we've moved through from the kitchen into the living room, I suppose, and and straight away the room is dominated by a sculpture in the corner of the room. This is both artists collaborated on this. The top is her, and down bottom him. Interesting. So at the bottom is a kind of cyclops figure with a sort of faint smile, and just a just a head. And standing on its head is um, is I think a female figure. Would you say it's it's a kind of again a slightly mermaid-like figure? There's a sort of hint of a tail between her legs, mm. but again quite stylized. But it really dominates the room. And then there's a built-in cupboard to the wall, and and on one of the wooden panels of the door is a, a distinctly Carrington-like. Uh, painting of a, a woman with a horse's head and wings. Gosh, it is really amazing to think that not only did she paint these very panels, but she ha- she was standing or sitting right, yeah. in this exact spot to do it because yeah. they're still hanging on the wall where she, yes. where she painted them. Yeah, I think that's part of the joy of this house, isn't it? That, you know, we see paintings and we read books in different places, but the work here has got to be here. It's yes. not going anywhere yes. because it's in the fabric of the house. Thank you, Albert. What an incredible room. So we're heading up the staircase from the kitchen to the upper floor. So we've just come into the bedroom where Leonora and Max would have slept, and it's it's up at the top of the house. We're, We're right in the sort of attic space. You can see the gable of the roof in the ceiling. You can see the beams. There's windows on two sides. There's an old cupboard door set into the wall and some amazing pieces of furniture uh, around the room which you know have remained in this room since they were here here that furniture is to them mm. this one mm. the sequel mm-hmm. that table which is really really interesting mm-hmm. is hers and Gosh. Um, Wow. Gosh, so Albert's opened up a bureau which did belong to mm. Leonora and has opened up a secret compartment inside it and is pulling out what looks like they exhibition catalogues. Like other things, but they're not still not here. so interesting. Here's one called The Man Who Lost His Skeleton. Mm. Oh, this is the joint work, the um, the story that Hans Arp and Leonora Carrington and Marcel Duchamp, they all wrote it together, uh-huh. and Leonora's section was called uh, The Skeleton's Holiday. Right, oh I yes, believe. yes, that's right, yeah. Um, yes, here we are, Le Skeleton Vacances. Mm. <laughs> huh. That's amazing. That is amazing to see. Albert, what, you grew up in this house yourself. A child only in holidays. Yeah. Okay, so what are your memories of... Six children on the room here. Wow. With two or three beds. Yeah. Uh, bunk beds. So do you, what are your... As a child, do you remember what you thought of the paintings and the sculptures? What did you make of it? Child, no. No. No, it, it, it didn't touch me <laughs> at all. For me, it's more a family house Yes. at this time yes, than something else. And at 18... I left Lyon, came here, yeah. and lived in this house. Wow. For about half of the year, I was here. From then on. And at 20, every time. Mm. Mm. At 20, I, I lived here, yeah. in that house. Mm. <laughs> and my room was the bathroom. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and oldest, around 80, yeah. I understood 
where I was. Uh-huh. And it was a big discovering. Really? Yes, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, really, oh really. my goodness, I've been living in this house with these <laughs> these paintings. Mm. Oh, There's a, a soul. There's something yeah. in that house. Yeah, the spirit and of you them. Can, you can feel it. You can feel it, yeah. 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 Well, Albert, thank you so much for uh, showing us around this beautiful house. We really appreciate it. It's such a privilege to see inside. And we're really grateful to you for taking the time. Houses are really bodies. We connect ourselves with walls, roofs and objects just as we hang on to our livers, skeletons, flesh and bloodstream. This is true of the backyard and the small room I occupied at that time. My body, the cats, the red hen, all my body, all part of my own sluggish bloodstream. Now we've just stepped outside the house and maybe now is the time to talk about the the kind of the looming horror which we've been avoiding talking about up to now, which of course is the, the outbreak of the Second World War, which of course happened later in 1939 and destroyed the idyll which they had created here together. In September 1939, when war was declared, within days, Max Ernst, of course he was a German, was informed that he was going to be interned because he was a citizen of the German Reich who were now France's enemies. So he was taken away once to prison and, and Leonora campaigned for his release, you know, explaining what, you know, what a standing he had as an artist and, and through getting friends from the Surrealist movement to uh, join the campaign, she managed to get him free. Released, yeah. But then in May 1940, for reasons that are sort of unclear, it seems like maybe someone in the village said something about mm. him, but he was taken away Again, and as she wrote in one of her accounts, she says, Max was taken away to a concentration camp for the second time under the escort of a gendarme who carried a rifle. And gosh, this just must have been so scary for them both, having, you know, built this paradise, literally built a paradise for Mm. themselves here, for her lover, for her um, partner to be taken away from this house at gunpoint. Mm. That just must have been... Absolutely. So traumatic. And she's still, you know, she was still a young, very young girl, really, 22 or 23 at this point, Mm. 22, I think. It's such a lot to contend with. And, of course, it left her entirely alone Mm. because they'd come to this little village, you know, not really knowing anybody. In a later account, she says uh, that, you know, once Max had been taken away, she said, I wept for several hours down in the village. Then I went up again to my house where for 24 hours I indulged in voluntary vomitings induced by drinking orange blossom water. It's like this kind of, you know, this visceral reaction mm, to, the, um, to the separation. Yeah. She, you know, she's starting to lose her grip on reality, isn't she? She's sort of doing what she can to mm. cope with this stress. I think she must have, you know, not probably been able to believe it was happening Mm. and she'd rescued the situation once and now it was happening again and the war was as you say it had been closing in on them from back in the days in in paris so yes but but somehow they must have felt like they'd escaped all that somehow down here they'd got away they must have felt a long way away mm, and then there it was catching up with them and it was a terrible time so gosh it's so scary to think of her on her own here with war 
broken in Europe and mm. and she's so far from home so far from um, the man she loved mm. she didn't mind being far from home of course <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> she wasn't trying to get back there but she needed friends as we all yes, do yes yes well luckily two of her friends from Paris Catherine and Michelle uh, were fleeing Paris heading towards Spain and they stopped off on the way south they stopped off and stayed with her here and they offered to take her with them mm. and so in June 1940 she went to the notary down in Saint-Martin and this is how she describes it she says I made over to the proprietor of the Hotel des Touristes where we were sitting yesterday my house and all my goods I returned home and spent the whole night carefully sorting out the things I intended taking along with me and in the end she packed just one suitcase to take with her and there's a line in the hearing trumpet when just before Marion Leatherby leaves for the old people's home where she says one has to be very careful what one takes when one goes away forever mm. and I feel like that is Leonora speaking from experience because gosh to have one night to pack a single suitcase and as we've seen she left so much furniture so many books mm. so much of her artwork it must have been so hard working out what to take with her. What to take with oh. her. And, and they only had a very small car as well. They had right. a Fiat. And she used to say to me, when we talked about this moment in her life, I remember she'd say um, uh, that the Fiat was about the size of the coffee table we were sitting at. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, you know, you oh could see why goodness. she could only take one, one suitcase. Gosh. Maybe a good thing to say is Catherine Yarrow and Michelle, her, her partner, they had to really persuade Leonora to leave here. I mean, you can imagine, they turn up here, Catherine, her, her English friend, you know, um, you wouldn't want to leave a young woman who's in the state she was in yes. on her own. So I think poor Catherine, you know, she was kind of trying to say anything to get her to get in that fiat and leave. Leonora did not want to leave here. And I think that she always carried some guilt about leaving because of course she knew nothing about where Max was she knew nothing about where he'd been taken she didn't know if she'd ever see him again but she did know that if he got out of wherever he was he this come back is where he would come back to and she was leaving here you describe it so well in the uh, book would you mind reading this little line from your your book about the moment she left the house sure Leonora closed the door of Les Alibert for the final time she walked into the garden in front of the house opened the doors of the dovecote to release the birds and stood for just a moment watching as they soared into the sky. Then she went down the lane to the Fiat. I never saw this house again. She never came back to this house again, no. Let's, um, let's leave the house as Leonora did. Let's head back down into the village, follow the, the, the tyre tracks of her Fiat as it headed south towards Spain and talk about what happened next in her remarkable story. Great. So they drove further south. Catherine and Leonora managed to get over the border into Spain. But in a later account, she describes how on this journey she started to lose her grip on reality, and, and this grew worse in Barcelona and then in Madrid, until finally she found herself you know, handed over and incarcerated in an asylum in Santander. She'd been through such a traumatic experience, you can see why you would suffer a, a real breakdown. But this experience she had in Santander was one of the darkest periods of her life, I would say. Would you agree with that, it, Joanna? It, it definitely was. And in fact, you know, so many decades later, when I knew her in Mexico City, she still it was still the, the, the period of her life that she was least keen to revisit mm. in our 
chat, in our talk? So the institution was run by a father and son, both doctors, called Dr Morales. And she suffered this treatment, which was a kind of precursor to electroconvulsive therapy. She was given a drug called cardiazole. And, well, you described the, uh, the effects in your book. You say the patient was usually strapped to the bed. The drug induced an epileptic fit, which doctors believed could restore lucidity. But it was an extremely frightening and unpleasant experience, and its lengthy list of possible side effects included heart attack, a dislocated jaw, spinal fracture, worsening depression, intense fear, hallucinations, and memory loss. Just so yeah, scary. Absolutely terrifying. So what happened next? How did she get out of this asylum? And, and, and how did she escape the war in Europe? Well, it's, it's a bit of unclear how she got out of the asylum, but there seems to have been there's this kind of mysterious figure who, who turns up, who's a, a relative, another relative, a relative of hers, and, and it must be of mine as well because it's on her mother's side, who's a cousin who is a, a Spanish doctor mm-hmm. um, who's, who's working in the town hospital in Santander. And he, because he's a doctor, he's able to come and meet her. And then he writes to the ambassador in Madrid and gets her freed, gets her out of the asylum because he realises, as indeed Morales realised later in his life, that she should never have been there in the first place. Not that she wasn't unwell. She was, but uh, she wasn't mad. Yeah. So this um, guy, Guillermo Gil, he's called, gets her out of the asylum and she goes to Madrid still with the nurse looking after her, the nurse from the sanatorium. So the the plan was that they were going to go to Madrid and then she was going to go on to Lisbon and be sent on a ship to to South Africa to be put into another sanatorium. That's what they had in mind for her. But in Madrid, she and this nurse had time to kill and they went to a tea dance. And at the tea dance, she spotted somebody across the room who she knew and it was a Mexican diplomat and poet called Renato Leduc and he was a friend of Picasso and Picasso had introduced right. him, Renato, to Leonora in Paris okay. back in the day when they'd been in Paris and Leonora had liked Renato so she obviously she was thrilled to see somebody she knew, she, sure. she, was, all in, she was entirely alone pretty much in the world by then so she started talking to Renato and he said get yourself to Lisbon ask for the Mexican embassy because that's where I'll be and let's see if we can get you out. Leonora then went to Lisbon, but she was then in the, in the sort of care of somebody else appointed by her parents to look after her. So she had to shake that woman off. And how she did it was, sounds like sort of quite a posh lady who thought, you know, she knew how English ladies should behave. And Leonora said, yeah. I can't manage in this, in this uh, here without any gloves or a hat. <laughs> so the woman said, of course, of course, you must have a hat and gloves. We'll go into Lisbon to get them. So they went into Lisbon on the train and uh, Leonora said, oh, my, my tummy, my tummy, you know, I've got, I, I've got to go to the loo. She went to the bathroom and she had guessed already that there was a back way out of that cafe. Wow. So she got out the back, hailed a taxi and said, take me to the Mexican embassy. And that's how she ended up at the Mexican embassy. And uh, Renato wasn't there immediately, but then he appeared. And so they married and that allowed her to escape with That's Renato. right. But of I mean, course there's a complication, right? Because in Lisbon, while they're waiting for passage to America, who should turn up but Max again? That's right. Yeah, and that was a twist in the So twist how did he tail. end up in Lisbon? Well, he had uh, managed to get out of, of, of his place of capture 
and he had gone to Marseille and he had hooked up again with Peggy Guggenheim, who of course he'd known in Paris. And the two of them were now a couple and they were going from Lisbon, they were getting uh, a plane actually from Lisbon to America. At the time Leonora and Max met, Peggy had not yet arrived in Lisbon, so she was probably still here in Marseille, in France. And Peggy describes in her memoirs arriving in Lisbon and Max meeting her at the station and he takes her arm and says, I have some, I think he says terrible news, I don't know if he says terrible or amazing news. Leonora is here and Peggy says, I felt the dagger go in my heart. Oh, gosh. Because Peggy knew, she always knew really, that... um, that Max, I'm afraid, was not ever in love with Peggy. He was still in love with Leonora. But gosh, there's this complicated sort of love square, right? Because yes. Leonora is marrying Renato in New York when all four you know, finally reach New York. Max does marry Peggy Guggenheim. Yeah. And yet, as you say, he perhaps was never really in love with her and, and continued to see Leonora often. He did continue to see Leonora. He saw a lot of Leonora in Lisbon and a lot of her. But what Leonora says, according to Peggy's account, but other accounts as well, is that Leonora had moved on from Max as an intimate partner by then. And Peggy, in her memoir, says Leonora was looking for a father figure and she found the father figure in Renato Leduc. Max was never a father figure. He was always a baby. He he needed looking after. He wasn't someone who could look after someone else. And so maybe, I think, by the time Max turned up again, Leonora had experienced being looked after by Renato, and she preferred it. Yeah. So let's let's scroll forward a little again, because uh, Leonora lives with Renato in New York for a while, but then he wants to return to his native land, Mexico, and they travel to Mexico City in 1942. Yep. But they are increasingly growing apart, and, and really the marriage was, you a know, it, it was in part a marriage of convenience. And in 1943, they separated. But Leonora stayed in Mexico and stayed in Mexico City yeah. and lived there on and off for the rest, the rest of, her of her life. life. Yeah. And w- why do you think Mexico suited her? What was it about Mexico City that, that felt like home for her? Andre Breton had had been to Mexico a couple of years yes, earlier. Yes, in 38. And he had remarked that Mexico was the most surreal country on the planet. So Leonora landed up there completely by chance. But then, as I always say, what's chance, really? You know, <laughs> what, what do we know? Uh, but Leonora, by what appears to be chance, found herself in Mexico. But it seems to me she couldn't have found a much more suitable place to be and in fact I think there are a lot of similarities between Mexico the Mexico in which she now finds herself and um, Ireland where she'd spent a lot of time as a child you know both kind of Catholic countries both countries where Mm. it seems to me sort of the veil between reality and a spiritual reality and different sorts of realities is maybe finer than in other places in the world like England Um, and I think that she fitted in she felt that, well, I don't think she really fitted in anywhere, if I'm honest, but I think <laughs> she, it was more conducive to her way of thinking, Mexico, than mm-hmm. well, any other and, place and I suppose there were two major relationships which uh, tied her to Mexico. In the first place, she married for a second time the Hungarian, another migrant who'd, who'd come to Mexico, Imre Americo Weiss, known as Chiki. 
who was her husband until he died not long before she did. And they had two sons together, Gabriel and Pablo. And the other great relationship of her time in Mexico City was with the Spanish surrealist artist, Remedios Faro, who again had wound up in, in Mexico during the war. And these two became incredibly close, didn't they? They saw each other most days. They did. I mean, Leonora was... After Leonora left Renato, she um, sort of increasingly became part of this group of emigre artists who'd fled from war-torn Europe. And Remedios was certainly one of those, and Remedios's then-husband, Benjamin Perret, who had been together with them in Paris. Uh-huh. There were also, you know, new people in the mix, like Katy Orna and uh-huh. her husband, Jose. So Katy's another Hungarian. She'd grown up with Chiki. Um, so... The relationship between Leonora and Remedios was very close and very important, but it was more they were all a group, if you see right. what I mean. Octavio Paz, the, you know, the great Mexican writer who won the Nobel Prize, he has a nice line saying, there are in Mexico two admirable artists, two bewitched witches, Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro, go through our city. Where are they going? Where imagination and passion call them. Oh, a nice line. Very good line. And of course, in The Hearing Trumpet, there's a great tribute to... Remedios in the character of Carmela, who is the friend who gives the hearing trumpet to Marion at the beginning. Yeah. And Carmela's surname in, is Velázquez, of course, the greatest of all Spanish artists. Yes. Um, and so, but what a tribute to pay to your artist friend, yeah. Spanish artist friend. And Carmela is one of the great characters of that novel, wouldn't you say? She's yeah, so yeah. funny. Absolutely. She wears a bright red wig at the beginning. Um, Marion says it, it's a kind of queenly gesture to her long-lost hair, which was almost as red as her wig, if memory is correct. Uh. And she has great lines like um, Carmela says, people under 70 and over 7 are very unreliable if they are not cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as we've been talking, we've walked down the hill, as, as Leonora must have done many times, from her house down into the heart of Saint-Martin. So why don't we find somewhere to sit... And we can discuss the legacy of Leonora Carrington and her reputation today. Herds of wild and domestic animals galloped through the cities, uttering their different cries all at once and seeking shelter from the heaving earth. In some places, fire leapt out of the earth and strange sights were seen in the sky. The surviving humans were mostly overcome by panic and shock. So we've come back to the Hotel Les Touristes. We're going to end where we began. And we've said how topical the hearing trumpet is in its feminism and its views on religion. But one of the most topical aspects of it is the, the theme throughout it of cataclysmic climate change and this uh, e- of the sort of ecological impact of humans in it. Without going into too much detail, I mean, it doesn't really spoil the plot, but the, uh, there's, there's some serious sort of geotectonic uh, activity that goes on in this novel. And at, at one point, Carmela, the, the Remedios character, says, I really believe the poles are changing places. There will almost certainly be a famine. And it's all the fault of that dreadful atom bomb that they were so proud of. And I think it's right, isn't it, that um, climate change and, and, and environmentalism was one of, the, one of the things that Leonora felt most passionately about. Is that right? She did. And also, I think something she always felt very, um, very strongly about was that human beings are animals. And, and she didn't like the idea 
or she called it out for the nonsense it is that uh, human beings think that they're superior animals. Mm. And I think what's happening in the world today is showing us we're not superior animals. We are a species of animal, but we have our place in this world. And if we don't understand our place and value our place, then the world won't keep us anymore. Mm. Mm. But Leonora, as in so many things, she was seeing this decades ago. It's so impressive. Typically of her, she has this throwaway remark about um, the survivors in England after this um, terrible cataclysmic climate change. She says, not many survivors in England. Most of the big cities are overrun by abominable snow people. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, gosh, that's just one of the ways in which this book just seems more and more relevant as we you know, read it today. And, and it's so heartening to see how Carrington's reputation is just growing and growing at the moment. I mean, if you think back to the exhibition that you curated in 2010... And then in 2015, there was an exhibition at Tate Liverpool. In 2017, you published your biography. In 2018, there was a major retrospective in Mexico City, a really huge exhibition. And then 2022, this year, her painting, The Inn of the Dawn Horse, that is the, the cover of the big surrealism exhibition at Tate Modern in London. And of course, the Venice Biennale 2022 is called The Milk of Dreams, which was the name of her children's book. And she is the kind of guiding spirit of that biennale this year so you know this is a great time to be interested in Leonora Carrington because her star is just rising and rising isn't it it absolutely is we used to kind of almost joke about this in Mexico because I remember once her saying um she actually didn't really like the idea that you know there'd be an exhibition and then there'd be she used to put it like the tea towels you know the, the, <laughs> anyway we used to the laugh merch. and I used to say well you know in the future of course I'll, I'll have the tea towels <laughs> but we didn't actually think I would have the tea towels I have the tea towels right. <laughs> yeah I have the mugs I have the tea towels I have the badges um she probably wouldn't want me to collect them all but uh, you know the particularly the Mexico City show and all the shows yeah. there are all those things in the shop yes, yes. and she just would never have imagined it I mean, when well, she died, there was even hardly anything in the Tate. And now they, now they have more well, work. That's fantastic. Well, to conclude, Joanna, you know, Leonora Carrington died in not that long ago, in 2011. Mm. And Joanna, as her cousin, as her friend, as her biographer, as someone who, you know, waves the flag today for Leonora Carrington, how would you characterise her legacy her reputation what you know what why is she important to us today I think she's important today because she understands the interconnectedness of everything and I think that's something that's become more and more clear to us human beings in the last few years but again I think it's something that Leonora understood a long time ago and I think if you look at her paintings and we've talked about this a bit in this podcast haven't we the way she's the, the, you know, the horse's head on the woman's body, the fish's tail on the human figure. She understands how all of life is connected, uh, how it connects to nature. And I think that that is probably the, the single most important thing that she has left us to ponder on. Oh, well, what, what a wonderful sentiment and what a wonderful way to end this extraordinary trip uh, to such a beautiful place and to such an extraordinary house. And, and Joanna, what a privilege to talk to you about an amazing woman, an amazing relative of yours. And I just can't recommend The Hearing Trumpet enough. It's, it's, a, it's like no other novel that you'll read. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very true. much for joining us for it's this episode. It's been great. Um, something that uh, Leonora often used to say to me was she used to ask me to thank people who were interested in her and in her work. So 
I always feel that I can pass on her thanks today. Oh, well, what a lovely, what a lovely thought to be thanked by Leonora. Thank you very much. <laughs> Many thanks to Joanna Moorhead, to Albert in Saint-Martin, to Naxos Audiobooks for the clips of Sean Phillips reading from The Hearing Trumpet, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. Leonora Carrington is remarkably pragmatic and prophetic about the future of surrealism in The Hearing Trumpet. As a 92-year-old, Marion Leatherby has seen the avant-garde movement of her youth gradually co-opted and absorbed by the establishment. Surrealism is no longer considered modern today, she says, and almost every village rectory and girls' school have have surrealist pictures pictures hanging on their walls. Even Buckingham Palace has a large reproduction of Magritte's famous slice of ham with an eye peering out. It hangs, I believe, in the throne room. Times do change indeed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.